Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from two different passages. Um, First, I will read 1 Peter 1, 3-5. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And now Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Our Father, as we come before you this day, we are so grateful for this season, this time each year when we can celebrate the birth of our Savior, when we can slow down a little bit, Think about the greatness of what you have done for us in sending your son to die for us. And as we think this morning about that, we look forward also to his return, the promise of Christ coming again in which he will renew all things. And so for that this day, Lord, we are grateful and ask that you would strengthen us each day of our lives as we continue to pursue your will in Christ. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated. As I come this morning, I'm reminded of what a homiletics professor told me many years ago. He said, there'll be times on a Sunday when you're preaching, on nearly any Sunday, when there will be people there who almost didn't come. And for those of you who did come, thank you for coming. This is a Sunday after Christmas, and there's a lot of good excuses that people have available today to not come. But you came. Now, for those of you who almost didn't come, I hope as we look into God's word this morning, you will find a message with such meaning that you're glad you did. That you'll look into God's word and say, I'm glad I didn't miss what God had for us on this day. Now this, of course, is the Sunday after Christmas. And so we've gone through the four Sundays of Advent. The first Advent in which we look forward to the coming of Christ in his incarnation in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. And we anticipate with So many, the shepherds and others, who looked forward to that day when Christ came the first time. The Jews, of course, at this time of the year, celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah means the festival of lights, and it's a time when Jews remember how God liberated the Jewish people from the Assyrian Greek oppression about 167 B.C. and let them now have freedom in their own land. And so the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights. We, on Christmas Day... Remember, in Bethlehem is a star led the wise men to where the Savior lie. And so both the Jewish and Christian traditions recognize this great light. And so it's perhaps fitting that it was on Christmas morning that NASA launched the James Webb Space Telescope. And as it did, it sent up a space telescope whose intent is to see the light at the farthest ends of the universe. And that telescope will find out in six months to a year as it's getting positioned, as it's getting focused, 
will be a telescope that reaches out to the end of the universe to see the light that was first created when God created. Now, if you were to ask scientists what they expect to see, they have an idea, and I think we'll see great pictures and great images. But there's two basic views about the nature of reality in which we live. On the one hand, there's the view of the non-Christian, the atheist, who says that if you look out there far enough, you'll see that there really is nothing at all. Yuri Gagarin, uh, Gagarin was the first cosmonaut, the first human in space. He went up, and it was reported something he actually didn't say, but the Russian media reported it. He said, I went up to space and saw that there is no God. Now, he didn't say that. In fact, Gagarin was a Christian, but the Russian uh, propaganda machine put that in his mouth. And so there's this image out there that if you go up there far enough, you'll see there is no God. But for the believers, of course, as we see, all of God's creation, as Psalm 19 tells us, is a great creation which he has revealed himself. And so this morning, we're looking, thinking about the great light that is Jesus. The great light is Jesus who came to earth first in the incarnation, but whose return is promised to us. And it's in that return that we have our greatest hope, our anticipation of what our future is. Now today, we can look at this passage, uh, these many passages we'll take a look at today, and think about what they all mean. There's a couple of points I want to make this morning. The first is that we need a living hope. And that's what 1 Peter's about. As Shay just read there, we see these words of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We need a living hope. Now, what is a living hope? A living hope is something that will center your life, that will give you meaning in life, that will give you value in life, that will show you how you can now live in this world today. A living hope is something that in your heart and mind you know is out there that gives you the strength you need even as we face the struggles of life, the suffering of life, the difficulties of life, the hardship, the mourning, the pain of life. When John wrote the book of Revelation, his uh, Irenaeus, uh, the great church father, told us that John wrote that during the reign of Domitian, Domitian was a Roman emperor. He came after his father Vespasian and his older brother Titus, the two who destroyed Jerusalem when the Jews rebelled. Domitian became emperor in about 81 and was emperor until 96. He didn't have any great accomplishments. Uh, his father did, great military general. His brother did, another general. Domitian was the second in line, wasn't even supposed to be emperor, but he became emperor on his brother's death. Domitian then found himself with some insecurity, and during this time, during these 16 years of his reign, Christianity was ascendant, and so Domitian in many ways began to persecute Christians. And so it's during this time that we see Christians being persecuted. And when John writes in Revelation 21 that one day he will wipe away every tear, the tear that John is talking about, those tears are tears from those believers John knew in the first century who were suffering under the persecution of Domitian. And those same tears are tears that 2,000 years later even come to us as we suffer and endure the difficulties of this life. So John writes and says, one day those tears will be wiped away. And he's giving them a living hope. Now what is a living hope? Think about it this way. We all in our lives live in circumstances that are difficult. But how we respond to those circumstances is affected by and determined by what we believe our future to be. Deanne and I, when we first got married uh, some years ago, moved to Alaska. 
We worked in a large church in Alaska, a couple thousand people. And in our church, we had a number of men who were ship's captains who did the Alaskan fishing. And we're talking about the salmon fishing and the crab fishing and very difficult fishing. Not the sort of stuff you do from the shore, but deep in the ocean in boats that go out there. And what happens is you need crew hands. So a ship needs crew hands. And the ship's captains that I knew, we had three of them in our church, uh, they only worked a few months a year. And the money was good for those months. But it was very hard work. And there was always deckhands, young guys that wanted to work on a ship for three months, believed they would make a fortune and do well. So imagine a situation where a ship's captain hires two different individuals. One is a newbie, and he says to him, you come on the ship with me, and I will pay you $10,000 after eight weeks out there. And you'll be, make so much money, you'll be happy. And this new guy who doesn't know what he's getting into says, that sounds wonderful. I'll go ahead and join up with you. But to the next guy, he says to him, I'm going to pay you $10 million when you go on the ship with me. And at the end of the eight weeks, you'll make $10 million. And he thinks that's great. So both are on the ship, and the ship goes out. And when they're out on the sea, the North Pacific Sea during the months of October to December when they fish, the seas are choppy, the wind is cold, the wind blows, and the cold moisture gets into your bones, and you get so cold you never overcome it. You work 18 to 20-hour days. It's sleepless days and sleepless nights, and, and the, the, the smell is never-ending. The motion of the boat keeps you nauseous, and you see these men heaving over the side. It's a hard life. But to the first one, after a few weeks of this, he says, this is ridiculous. I don't know how we got into this mess, but this is not worth it. I would do anything to get out of this mess that I'm now in. But if you went to the second one, even though the boat's moving and he's nauseous, he'd be saying, oh, this is wonderful. I couldn't be happier in my life. Everything is just fine. He wouldn't care about how, smelled, uh, how smelly it was, how hard the shipping was, how hard the seas threw him around. None of that would matter to him. Why not? Because he's looking at something different. They're both going through the same circumstances, but they have a different expectation of the end. The one has a very meager expectation. The second one has a very great expectation of a hope, something more coming at the end of this voyage. Our lives are a lot like that. In this life, we are on the sea of life. We feel tossed to and fro. Many times we get nauseous, we get sick. We suffer pain through this life. But if you have a living hope, what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1.3, a living hope that says there's a coming king Jesus is our coming king, and when he returns, everything will be made right again. You see, so for a Christian, that is our living hope. When John in Revelation 21 says one day that he will wipe away every tear, that's looking to the future saying that in the present life there are tears. In the present life there is mourning, there is suffering. But one day in the future, all of that will come to an end. When Christ returns and we enjoy his presence forever. So we need a living hope, and you can't live this life without something of a hope. But the second thing we see in our outline is we have a living hope in Jesus. Now you think about this living hope that we have in Christ himself. In the first century, again, as we saw in the seven letters to the churches in the past few months, there was great suffering. There was great difficulty in life. There was a persecution that began to sort of systematically and widespread and was intense and aggressive in many places. And when that persecution came, John wrote to those churches and reminded them that there's a strength that you have because you are in Christ. And they needed that. And so the persecutions came. 
Believers saw one or another hauled out, saw them being executed, as we saw Polycarp being executed in the square. They saw family members being tortured and killed because they were Christians, because of their Christian faith. And through all of these times, believers continued to thrive. Why? Not because they had some ignorant, optimistic sort of view of life, but because they knew they had a living hope in what Christ had promised, that in his return, all would be made well again. And so they're looking forward to that living hope. They're looking forward to that. So the persecutions came. Uh, Tertullian, the great church father, also said that the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As the people, as the Christians were killed, their blood spread in the Colosseums around the Roman Empire. There was a promise there. And that became the seed of the church, which began to expand and to thrive as Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. There were also times in later centuries when plagues would come among the Christians, when plagues would come among all the land. But what happened was the pagans, the unbelievers, they would flee from the plagues. In fact, Bart Ehrman, who many of you are aware of, wrote a book recently, The Triumph of Christianity, in which he talked about how Christianity began to spread so widely. And even he acknowledges that, that in church history, there were Christians who didn't flee from the plague when it came, but instead went to it. They went to care for one another because they loved one another. And they didn't see this end of life as being the end of everything, but they knew there was a great promise that we have as a believer. And so they went to those who were sick, to those who were suffering. And we see in Christian history the church thriving because of that. And so we do have this living hope that comes in Jesus. But we need to see how this living hope works. What is this hope we're talking about? When we think about eschatology, the doctrine of last things, what we believe about what's coming, we often think about the nuts and bolts of things. We think about the rapture, maybe we talk about the tribulation, we talk about the millennium, and all of these little pieces that have to be put together. Today, when we talk about the second coming, we're not going to get tied up in the nuts and bolts and try and reassemble those points here. Instead, I want to talk about the big scheme of things, the promises that come from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from Jesus and Paul and John and Peter, as they talk about the great and glorious future coming of Christ in which his kingdom is established on all the earth. That's the promise of the second coming. So when we think about that, we have to sort of lay a foundation to it. And there's three parts of theology that you're aware of that, that tie together, that sort of outline in a broad format all of Scripture. There is creation, there is fall, and there is redemption. And I'm sure you've heard those three words put together before. There's creation, fall, and redemption. But I want to just briefly circle back around through those to show us how those three critical fundamental themes tie together to lay the foundation to what is our understanding of Christ coming again. On the one hand, we have creation. And it's not simply that God creates. It's that God created what was good. God creates and his creation was good. Now, in creating, we think, first of all, we have to remember that there's God and creation is separate from God. Creation and God are not the same thing. There's God and creation is separate from him. God inhabits all of the universe, but creation is something separate. Now, a lot of times we think in terms of creation being physical and God and spirit and our souls 
and goodness being immaterial. And so we create this dichotomy or this dualism between the immaterial world and the material physical world of creation. And we do that, we, we think in those terms, often then the conclusion is, is that the material world is where evil resides at. That evil resides in the physical universe and that what is good is what is spirit, what is soul, what is God, what is immaterial. And that sort of an idea sort of leaked into Christian theology during the Middle Ages and has become very prominent in paintings of the Renaissance and in much of Christian theology. But what might surprise you is it's nowhere to be found in the Bible at all. In fact, when God creates, he creates a universe and calls it good. It's not evil because it's physical. And so we don't believe in what we can call a cosmological dualism. That the cosmos is made of, a, of the immaterial and material. These two parts, when we see the world that way, we're going to be misled and, and go down the wrong track as we try and piece together what the Bible tells us about the second coming and about all of our future. And so we don't see it that way. But God creates that which is good. And then he created humanity. We'll talk about the fall in a moment. But when he created humanity, Adam and Eve, he created them in the image of God. The Imago Dei. We're created in God's image. And when we're created in God's image, there's two things that come with that. First, we reflect God back to God in worship. Part of the reason God creates us and he creates us in love is so that we can reflect back to God worship to God himself. God created us so that we can love him. God created us so that we can worship him. And that's why God creates. That's what gives us meaning in life. But we reflect not only God back to God in worship, but we also reflect God into the world in stewardship. Being created in the image of God was to make man, humanity, responsible for God's creation. And so God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and tells them to do what to it? To tend to the garden, to tend to the garden, to be fruitful and to multiply. And this is all part of what it means to be human, why we are here. Of course, then the fall comes in and impairs that. And that's the second thing we talk about. So we have creation that is good, then we have evil, we have the fall. Now, evil is pervasive and evil is horrible. Evil is not that which is material, of course, but evil is that which is in rebellion against God. And so when we think about the history of, of, of creation, it's created good, man's created good, man's created God's image, but then man rebels. Evil then comes into the world because of our own rebellion, our own idolatry. Rebellion is simply you deciding that something other than God is going to be your God. Whether it's power, whether it's pleasure, whether it's profit, whatever it may be, we decide we want something else for ourselves rather than God. And that's the rebellion that brings into the universe this sort of evil. And so evil then pervades all of creation, and creation is marred by that. We think also now of, of things in a temporal sense. So while we have a cosmological dualism that thinks in terms of physical versus immaterial, material versus immaterial, we can think of things temporal what we might call an eschatological dualism. In other words, there is a present age in which we live. The Bible speaks of us today in a present age. Paul calls it a present evil age. That's the world in which we now live. It's an evil age of God's creation marred by evil. But it also talks about the second coming in which there is an age to come. 
And so the proper way to think in terms of twos is not material versus immaterial. It's instead in, in terms of the present evil age against the future coming age in which Christ reigns as king in the second coming. So think in those terms and you'll get a better, you'll, you'll find yourself in a better place when you get to the book of Revelation. So there's this creation, there's evil that comes into the world, but third, there's redemption. Now, redemption, of course, if we thought that evil is material, then redemption would be the shedding of the material body and you going, in, in an immaterial sense, someplace to be with God. That's Plato talking. That's not the Bible talking. But if we think in terms of the temporal, we see that redemption is God liberating Sin is our captivity. When the Israelites were sent into Egypt, they grew in slavery in Egypt. Eventually, one day, God said that I will liberate you from Egypt, liberate you from your captors. And that became an image, a picture of what redemption is. It's to being liberated from slavery. And so the Bible speaks of sin and us as slaves to sin. We're bound to it, but we are free in Christ. And the picture we see throughout the scriptures is that there's a freedom we have by being in Christ. There's a freedom that we enjoy because we know that we have him and there's a future with him. So these themes of creation, of evil and the fall and of redemption are the three great themes that tie together all of scripture. But redemption extends not simply to our individual private souls. Redemption extends also to all of creation. And that's what we're going to see. So now I'm going to talk about a number of themes that we'll see. And I hope you brought your Bibles because I, I kind of had an idea of the kind of people we'd have here this morning. People that brought their Bibles and people that are well accustomed to thumbing around a little bit through it. So we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study and look at a number of the great themes of Scripture that show us what redemption is and show us what the second coming is all about what Christ's setting up his kingdom is. So first of all, uh, let's go over to uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. I want to see here just a little bit about what Paul to the Colossians writes about when he talks about what Christ did. Colossians 1.15, and we're going to read down through uh, about verse 20. It says, he is, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, he's not created in the image. He is the image. There's a difference there. We are created in God's image to reflect Christ is the image. He is that which matters. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, make a mental note of the words firstborn, because we're going to see it again shortly. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, what? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. When you 
tie together the themes of God's good creation and the, the effects of evil, but God's redemption, you see what now Paul is talking about in Colossians 1. That there is this now, this redemption in Christ, the renewal and the recovery of all things. It is a message that God's intended redemption is for all of creation, not just humanity. And so there is this renewal. And it, and it speaks of it here in terms of the firstborn. Now we think about the firstborn. Uh, let's go over real quick to uh, uh, Philippians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to sort of pick up on this idea again that we have in Christ this firstborn. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, and you know 1 Corinthians 15 is this chapter which talks about the resurrection, the resurrection which Christ is raised from the dead, but what are the effects of that? We think about Calvary, we think about Easter, we think about his death and his resurrection, and we know the benefits of that in terms of our salvation. But what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is to extend those benefits, and we see how far it really goes. So he writes in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But in each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this passage, Paul talks about the effects of the resurrection, and that it means that Christ is not simply the only one who's resurrected, but he's the first fruits of it. And, and the, the imagery here is of, of the, the Passover and, and of Pentecost. Passover in Old Testament history and Pentecost, let's just tie that together real quickly from the book of Exodus. Passover, of course, was celebrated when uh, the, uh, the angel of death passed over those who put the blood on the doorpost. And so the Jews celebrated Passover as a reminder of God's salvation, a God, a God's deliverance of them from bondage in Egypt. Passover was celebrated from then on as a recognition and reminder that God had liberated them from their slavery in Egypt. Pentecost was also celebrated. Now, Passover was celebrated with the, on the date of the first fruits of the barley harvest. And so when the barley harvest first came in, they would give the first fruits of that harvest to the temple, give it to God as recognition that it's only the first, but that it all belongs to him. Pentecost was seven weeks later, uh, the, the, the recognition of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Pentecost was a reminder to the Jewish people, long before Acts 2, is a reminder to them of their entry into Sinai where God gave them the law and made his covenant with them that they would be his people. So in the pre-Christian era, in the Jewish world, they saw Passover and Pentecost, first in terms of liberation from Egypt, and secondly in terms of covenant renewal in Sinai. God made a covenant with them, a promise with them. Now... Jesus comes, and we see Calvary. What does the Gospel of John do? John reminds us 
that Christ was crucified when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. And so John explicitly in the gospel ties the crucifixion of Jesus to this very same liberation. Liberation now from our sins. Christ then becomes our Passover lamb. And then seven weeks later, we hear Pentecost. And a lot of times we think Acts 2, the Pentecost was first celebrated the day when the Spirit came down. Pentecost had been celebrated for centuries before. But now we have the Spirit coming down. And that's what empowers Christians. That's what empowers believers. And so John and Paul and Peter take up these themes of the seed time and the harvest and apply it now to Christ and to us and say that we are those seeds, that Christ is the first of them and that we follow in his way. He's the first fruits and there's much more to come. And so that's how Paul sort of develops this theme about what it means to look forward to Christ in the second coming. And so there is this time of renewal. Jesus is that one. Flip over, uh, to, uh, real quickly to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we see another theme that Paul develops here. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul here speaks of our citizenship is in heaven. He says in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's enough for just a moment. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. And when Paul wrote this, perhaps the year uh, 60-ish or so, uh, Philippi was a growing city. By the end of the first century, the year 100, Philippi would become the second largest city in the known world after Rome. Philippi was established soon after Augustus at the Battle of Philippi with Mark Antony, uh, defeated Brutus and Cassius, those who had slain Julius Caesar. So Philippi was first established as a place by Augustus to keep Roman soldiers. And more Roman soldiers were settled there in the years that followed after Augustus then defeated uh, Mark Anthony at the Battle of Actium in the year 31, and so, 31 BC. And so now for a hundred years or so, Philippi had been growing, and it had been settled by Roman soldiers. Now, you know why they would establish Philippi. The last thing that Rome wanted was a bunch of retired soldiers milling around Rome looking for something to do. So Augustus knew the safest thing to do would be to put them in Philippi. And what Augustus was doing in Philippi was establishing a Roman outpost, separate from Rome, out there. But they were still Roman citizens. They weren't citizens of Philippi. If you asked any of those soldiers, they would say, I am a citizen of Rome. And they knew they were citizens of Rome. Paul now writes to this church, and he says that we are citizens of heaven. Now, he's not there saying that simply we're citizens of heaven and one day we're going to go to heaven. What does he say instead in verse 20? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We, as believers, are looking for a Savior who will come down from heaven. Come down, and so what Jesus is doing, what Paul is talking about, is Jesus is establishing his kingdom on this earth. And as we believers... Follow Christ where we're at, whether it's in Denver here, Myanmar over there, where we have so many uh, fellow believers. Wherever we are around the world, we are simply believers establishing outposts as citizens of heaven. We are part of that promise that God has made. And so Paul now pictures us here. And then he continues to say that we are citizens of heaven, and from it we await a Savior, 
who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will he do? He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so the picture here, the promise, is that Jesus will one day come, and when he does, we in our physical bodies will find them transformed into the likeness of his resurrected body. Now, here's where it's sometimes difficult for people to kind of conceive this. You remember back when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and we saw in, in the end of the Gospels uh, and in Acts, the appearances that Christ made. And when Christ made these appearances, he, he came to them, but he came to them as the resurrected Jesus. Now, we often think of him coming to life again. So he's alive, he dies, and then he comes back to life again like he was. And when we think that way again, we're making a mistake. Because what the Bible talks about with Christ is that he, he was human in the incarnation at Bethlehem, became a human. He was then killed on Calvary and died. But he was resurrected, not backwards into this life, but resurrected forward as the first fruits of our resurrected life. First of his resurrected life and then of the resurrected life that all believers are promised. And so it's that future resurrection that Paul now in Philippians uh, 3 is talking about that we are looking forward to. That's when we will have our lowly bodies transformed into the likeness of his resurrected body. And so this is our life after death. It's not to come back here, but it's to go forward into that resurrected life. And so when Christ returns, that's the big promise that we're looking forward to. A promise of a resurrected life in God's new kingdom. And so we see Paul talking about that in Philippians 3. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. There's another thing, one more thing we'll pick up on, and that's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We all have uh, used the words new birth. We know what new birth is. We know that one day, Jesus, in John chapter 3, as John records it, was uh, out in the evening, and Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And Jesus told him that you must be born again. Be born again, new birth, the same idea there. But what does new birth really entail? We often, again, limit it to think that new birth is only about our physical, individual salvation. But Paul, in Romans chapter 8, takes this metaphor of the new birth and then begins to extend it to all of God's creation as God has promised us in his second coming in the future. And so we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Follow me from there. So uh, Paul writes again, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, tying all of this together, Paul recognizes the sufferings of our present time and the promise there, the living hope that Paul's talking about, is the glory that is to, be, is to be revealed in us. In verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul then, strangely enough, begins to extend the idea of new birth, of new creation, of new life, not simply to those who are believers, 
but to creation itself as God remakes this new heavens and new earth that we'll talk about in Revelation. All of this is a promise of what God has made for us. And so verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You think about the pains of childbirth, the trauma of it, the contractions, the convulsions. The metaphor that Paul chooses here is done for a specific reason. Because there is out of that moment of birth, from the mother comes the new creation. God in Christ is recreating, making things new again. There is new life coming, and that's what he's talking about. So he uses this metaphor, this picture of new birth to show that God has a promise of a future for all of us. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And again, we get back to hope again. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This idea of hope, this idea of a living hope is what Peter talks about. It's what John talks about in Revelation chapter 21. As we come to this passage in Revelation 21, we see so clearly now how these various themes work together. That there's a good creation that God intends on renewing. That God renews that creation through what Jesus did on the cross. And what God did for Christ in the resurrection, God will also do for his creation, including those who are believers. We too will be given that new resurrected life. And when you get to the book of, uh, book of Revelation, you come to the end of it. And a lot of times it's easy to just skip to the end and get to the great glorious message of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the second coming. And you cheat yourself if you don't work your way through the whole book to earn your way to get to that point. It's a hard book to read. It's a hard book to understand. But if you were to summarize, it would be quite simply this, that John pictures a world in which there's great suffering, in which the great horror of Babylon is, is, is causing torment among those who are believers. But there's a great and glorious promise that comes to those who persevere, to those who are believers. And so look over to Revelation chapter 20, verse 20, uh, chapter 21. We'll see uh, just some themes here quickly. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new vision and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What John pictures at the end of time is a new heavens and a new earth. And that's a picture, that's a description of what our life is for those who are believers. That is our living hope that Peter's talking about in, in 1 Peter 3. It's a sense that this is not the only payday we ever get. That whatever you think you may earn in this life, that's not all there is, but instead there's so much more. So we have this image of this new heavens and this new earth that comes down to earth. It is, as it were, heaven rejoining earth. Uh, in the ancient world, they often talked about the uh, uh, Axis Monday, There's the path between heaven and earth, and that heaven comes down to earth. The temple in the Old Testament was a place where God manifests himself, where God dwelt. In fact, the Greek word for tent 
Skene is, is very similar to the, this Hebrew word Shekinah, which is God's presence. So God dwelt with them in the tent of the tabernacle. God's presence is Shekinah. His glory dwelt with them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And finally, the book of Revelation shows us that his temple becomes the whole earth. All of creation is God's temple. There's not a final temple in the end, but the earth, the creation, is God's temple. And this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem, comes down. The new Jerusalem is a picture of all those who are believers, all those who are God's people, now reigning forever with Christ on earth. That's what we see in this picture. John uses also, if you were to turn back into Revelation 19, this image of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 20, uh, he also talks about this marriage. We know that we as a church are the bride of Christ. And as a bride of Christ, we're prepared for him. And John pictures this bride who's now beautiful. Now, you know brides on their wedding day wear a beautiful white dress. And it's such a wonderful moment. There's a love and a joy there. We are the bride of Christ, Paul tells us. We are to be joined with Christ. But what we also know is that individually as a bride, we're often rebellious, we're often adulterous, we're often unfaithful. But in the end, when all things are made new, we're made beautiful again, and at this marriage supper of the Lamb, we're joined together with Christ on earth. And so the book of Revelation is a story that tells us about the end of time, all of time, in which all of time is consummated, and we have this great glorious reunion with Christ at the end. And so we see this marriage supper of the Lamb. We see sin defeated. And I think now we can see how this can help us live this life. This life of sorrow, this life of difficulty, this life of pain. A world in which there are tears, a world in which there is mourning, a world in which there is unending suffering. We know, though, that we have a living hope. And at the end of it, we can look beyond this world to see what's coming. And that's a promise that, that we have. But it's also here already. And so we often talk about the, the benefits of, of what Christ has done already here. So we have an already side to it and a not yet. Already we are made new, but not yet finished. Already God has worked his work of salvation in us, but it's not yet finished. We are saved already. We're saved in the past. We're saved in the present, but it's not completed. So we're also saved in the future. There's this already, this not yet aspect to it. You see? And so we can think in those terms. It's already been made new, but it's not yet finished. And so for a believer, we can be optimistic. While some in the world and, and philosophies that have come and gone, is uh, like Sir Thomas More wrote Utopia, this picture that we can build this world that's utopian, where everything is so nice. And that became sort of an idea that lasted in the 19th century and there's this idea that world and, and society and science would progressively get better as we evolved and evolved and we'd get better and better and to which we could reach some utopian world. And of course, World War I destroyed that. And if it didn't, then World War II finished it off. And so there's very few people today who picture some utopian world. Instead, most people live with some picture of a dystopian world in which all ends in fact, if you were to ask scientists, they would say that as the sun continues to burn its hydrogen into helium and its helium away, that it will begin to lose its mass 
And as it does, it will lose its gravitational attraction. And as it loses its gravitational attraction, it will begin to expand. And eventually, it will expand and encompass the Earth in which the Earth will be burned up. In about a billion years, they'll tell you. So scientists today in that vein have no hope of a future. It will all eventually, on Earth, burn up and end. And the universe itself expand into a never-ending coldness of nothingness. So they have no reason to be optimistic. But as a Christian, of course, we can be optimistic because we know there's a future. We know what Christ will do for us. But we're also realistic. And so in our realism, we know, for example, that when cancer strikes, cancer kills. And so for the world today, you can take one or two views of it, either the view that says, I will overcome this and be healed and all will be right again. Or you can take the negative view and say, this cancer will kill me and all will be done. But the Christian view is both optimistic and realistic at the same time because it says, cancer may kill me in this life, but there's a resurrected life I have after it. So I can be realistic and know that we may die in this world, but to know also optimistically that we have a great hope, that hope is in the future. And that hope is our home. There was a survey done a few years ago in England uh, about the year 2014 in which some artists got together and asked people, about what gave them their greatest memories in life. And if you ask yourselves, what are your greatest memories? Think about that for a moment. Your greatest memories would be pictures of your first dates, your first dances, your first loves, your, first, your, your marriage, your first children, all your children, holidays, times together, family, friends. Those are the things that give us memories. Those are the things that give us joy. And they found in the survey they did that there was nearly no one who said anything material. People don't look to material things as giving them their greatest memories. They talked about love. They talked about home. They talked about family. They talked about marriage. They talked about children. And that is a better picture of what God's promised to us, as we see in Revelation. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the coming together, the new birth of creation, Romans chapter 8. All of these things come together. That's the end of history. That's the end of time when Christ returns. Think again about the James Webb telescope going out there. It's going out to look. And what it will see is the beginning points of light at the moment of creation. If, when Stephen Hawking was asked about Christianity, he said that Christianity is for those who are afraid of the dark. John Lennox, the great Christian mathematician and philosopher, was asked about Hawking, and he said, well, the problem with Hawking is that hawking, uh, that uh, atheism are for those afraid of the light. The James uh, Webb telescope is not going to find the light of God out there, even though it will find the beginning lights of creation. But the light of God is what comes to us. The light of God is that which shines from Christ through us into the world. And what God has called us as believers to do is to be those moments of light in our world so that unbelievers know more about what Christianity is that Christ is the true light that has come. Now, one of the great Christmas hymns we like to sing is not actually a Christian hymn at all. It's a song, Joy to the World, which is not, it's not, a, it's not a Christmas hymn. Okay, Joy to the World is not a Christmas hymn. It's a Christian hymn. It's not a Christmas hymn because it's not about the incarnation and Christmas. It's about the second coming. Joy to the world is a song about the second coming of Christ. And so Bentley and the musicians are going to come now as we dismiss, and we're going to sing this song. But as we sing the song, Joy to the World, I want you to think about the words that we're singing. Joy to the world, the Lord has come.
Let earth receive her king. Will you stand with us as we prepare this song now? And as we sing, let's sing in recognition of the fact that Christ will one day come as king and all the world will then rejoice at the coming of Christ. Thank you, Rick. Let's stand as you're already, you're already doing that. You're anticipated. Let's sing Joy to the World, all four verses. It's one of those songs that just rolls along. But let's pay attention to these words together. This last verse. We thank you for this time, for this encouragement to be even more enthusiastic about your return than shepherds and wise men were the first time, if that's possible. They set an example, but we know the rest of the story they did not. But you promised not just to come a first time and create the means for our salvation, but you promised to come back again and to rule this earth rule the heavens for all time we pray for each one that we would bear these this encouragement as we live this week for you and we pray this in jesus name amen have a great week everyone